Good morning. How's everyone? Good. So good to be here. Glad you're here. Um, after Corey Ten Boom was released from a Nazi prison camp, she traveled around from church to church, many different churches in many different nations, with a very clear message about God's grace that was extended to her and her sister Betsy during her time in Nazi prison camp. Her sister died in one of those camps. But one of the aspects of that grace that she strongly emphasized was forgiveness. And I want to share with you her account of how God took that idea of knowing forgiveness and transitioned it to knowing forgiveness. And there's a difference, okay? There's a great difference there. We want to identify that difference. And I want to ask you to lean in to this account with me, although most of you have probably heard it before, because it's very relevant to the core of what I believe the Lord may want us to know and learn this morning. This is her account. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I liked to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. Grand news. After the conference, that's when I saw Him. Working His way forward against the others, and then everything came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights. The pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor. The shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment of skin. Now he was in front of me with his hand thrust out. Did he remember me? Surely not. I was only one out of thousands. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take his hand. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. No, he didn't remember me, but he went on. But since that time, I have become a Christian and I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had to be forgiven 
and I could not forgive. It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult decision that I've ever had to make. I had to do it. I knew that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. Help, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand, God. I can do that much, but you must supply the feeling. Okay, so hear what she's saying. I have to obey. I have to do that. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did so, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried. I forgive you with all my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I have never known God's love so intensely as I did right then at that moment. Now, this is what I want us to do this morning. I want us to simply explore the outworkings of this moment through the course of our message. Listen, what was her greatest responsibility? And what did her responsibility, or what did her response to that responsibility provide for her? Those are the questions we're going to answer. We're going to come back and assess that as we talk this morning about a condition that necessarily precedes belief. Okay? A condition that necessarily precedes belief. And that's so relevant because that's the thrust of what John is wanting to say to us through this book. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Now, I'm going to read verses 14 through 18. I want to greatly encourage you to read verses 14 through 31. We've tried to divide the Gospel of John into some sections to serve you, us. But I want our focus this morning to be on verses 14 through 18. That's going to be where we camp. Specifically verse 17. But please go back and read 14 through 31. John chapter 7, starting in verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but His who sent me. Verse 17 is going to be key for this morning. If anyone's will 
is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Let's pray. Fathers, we approach you this morning, God. We are praying for the truth and the reality of the gospel to permeate our hearts, God, and to change our wills. God, we would ask this morning that, Lord, you would move us. And we put the emphasis on you, God, as Jason has even stated earlier. Because, God, it's necessary that we confess that with you all things are possible. So, God, move us. Change us. Convict us. Touch our hearts. Touch our wills that we would will what you will. Would you do these things for your glory ultimately? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Three principles from these few verses that I want to talk about this morning. The first is submission of the will as an order for salvation. Submission of the will for the sake of obedience. Submission of the will as a response to the Savior. So we're talking about the need to be a submissive people. Let's talk about submission of the will as an order for salvation. It's probably important on the outset that we make an attempt to define what we mean when we talk about the human will. I love A.W. Pink's definition of the human will when he says, the human will is the faculty of choice. It's our desires. It's our wishes. It's our wants that we're seeking to implement. So let's back up and give his full definition. The human will is the faculty of choice, and choice necessarily implies the refusal of one thing and the acceptance of another. So let's reread verse 17 with that mindset and that thought of what the human will really is. If anyone's will or if anyone's pleasure... If anyone's desire is to do God's desire, he will know. That's when he'll know. Now, I'm going to reread verse 17 from the Living Bible, and I want you to do something for me. I want you to look for, and I want you to pay attention to a condition that precedes a promise. And we're going to identify what both of those are, but look for it with me as I read verse 17 from the Living Bible. If any of you really determines to do God's will, then you will certainly know whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. What's the promise? The promise is seen in the latter part of verse 17. The promise is a man will know what I'm saying. The promise is that a man can know that what Jesus Christ says is absolutely true, is the absolute truth to the point of being life-changing truth. 
We can know that what Jesus Christ says is truth, life-changing truth, to the point that it moves a man from being dead in his sin and awakens him to be alive in Christ. Life-changing truth that causes a man who was once a persecutor of the church to be a lover of the church. Life-changing truth that causes a man who has in his past been defined by bitterness and anger and malice to now be transitioned and be defined by love and empathy and compassion. We can know that what the Savior says is absolute truth. And in order to understand why that knowledge brings such drastic changes into a person's life, we have to understand what Jesus meant when He used the word know in verse 17. If you do this, then you will know. The word know is from a Greek word that means not only to perceive, but to perceive and feel. Not only to know, but to know and become known. Not only to have knowledge, but to have experiential, intimate knowledge. As a matter of fact, the intimacy behind the idea of knowing that Jesus Christ is talking about in this passage is the intimacy that exists between a husband and a wife as they know each other in the most intimate ways. And the Bible, the Savior, is telling us that we can have that type of life-changing, life-altering knowledge. As a matter of fact, beloved, we have to have that type of life-changing, life-altering knowledge, our salvation depends on it. A man who does not know this type of life-changing, life-altering knowledge is a man who will never see the Savior. That's the promise. The promise is you can have that knowledge and your life can be radically changed for the glory of God. Now, what's the condition? What about the condition that precedes this promise? What has to happen in my life? What has to happen in your life in order to obtain this knowing that the Savior is talking about? Well, this passage suggests that I first have to have a will that wills God's will. Or, I first have to have a will that desires God's will. First, there has to be a part of me that wants what God wants. That desires what God desires. That finds pure pleasure in the things that God finds pleasure in. And I want to suggest this morning that that is an across-the-board truth, not only in not only in relation to the order of salvation, but in relation to the whole of our Christian life. In other words, my submitted will primarily is what leads to me knowing. A submitted will is necessary in order for us to know and in order for us to understand. And if we keep this in context and remember who it is that the Savior is talking to, 
He's talking at this moment to unsaved Jews. Dun, dun, dun. Okay? He's talking to unsaved Jews. At what point does an unsaved man want what God wants? Isn't that really the question that we need to ask in relation to this moment? Because the suggestion from the Savior is not that a man is dead, then a man believes, and then a man desires the things that God desires. As a matter of fact, the Savior's suggestion is, in this passage, that a man is dead, and first the will has to be confronted and awakened to the truth of verse 18, which is, Sir, you've been in pursuit of your own glory all of your life. And when he's awakened to that truth and introduced to a greater glory, the glory of God, the glory of the Son, then that man knows. Then that man believes. Listen, Christ is reminding us of a grand truth that we need to embed in our minds right now. He is reminding us that the root of unbelief, the roots that run deep into our hearts, the roots of unbelief that run broad into our minds, they are not due to man being ignorant. They are not due to a lack of exposure to the person of Christ. Even Jesus' own brothers didn't believe. The roots of unbelief run deep into a man's heart, and brought into a man's mind because a man, a man's will is consumed and defined by a lack of desire to want to know truth. Man is defined by a will that has no desire to want to believe to the point, according to the Savior, that the will of the man has to first be confronted, first awakened, first challenged in order that he may even be able to believe. Really, I mean, isn't that what the Savior's saying? If he wasn't saying that, wouldn't he have flip-flopped and talking about the need for us to first know? And then after we know, our wills are confronted? That's not what he says. First, our will has to be confronted in order that we may believe. Now, there's a lot of reasons that people say they don't believe. You know what? I don't believe. I'm not going to submit to Christ because I just believe that the church is so full of hypocrites. I've seen it throughout my whole life. And because of that reason, I'm just going to choose to not believe. No, sir, that's not the case. It would not matter if the church were lined with the greatest of saints. You will not believe because your human will does not want to believe. Your human will does not want to submit. Well, I'm not going to believe or I'm not going to submit because when I was a little girl, something really bad happened to me and I can't believe that a good God would allow bad things to happen to an innocent person. No, ma'am, that's not the truth at all. No, ma'am, the truth is that if you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth, you still would not believe because your human will does not desire to believe. You do not want to believe. You will not submit to God because your human will just simply doesn't desire. John Piper states the following. <clears throat> Before we can hear 
the Word of Christ and recognize it as sent from God and worthy of being received, our will must be brought into alignment with the will of God. Something has to happen deep down in the root of our will to remove the rebellion against God that we all have by nature. This has to happen before we believe. Something has to happen to take away our antagonism against the authority of God. Listen, why is that so relevant? You may even be saying, okay, what's the hope in that? Let me tell you. The hope in that is what was described and proclaimed during worship all morning long. God can do what we cannot do. The ultimate game changer, the ultimate decision maker in relation to our salvation, the salvation of loved ones, the course of our life, the ultimate game changer, the ultimate decision maker is not human will. The ultimate decision maker is but God who has mercy. Romans 9.16 says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's the good news. Would you do me a great favor, beloved? Would you remember that? Would you remember that when you find your heart broken over someone that you love, that you know, and you know deep down you've got that moody mentality, that person's going to die and go to hell unless, unless God gets a hold of them. Would you remember that at that moment? Would you remember that if, God forbid, you would ever be confronted with a wayward child? Would you remember that if you find your marriage in a very fragile place, a little shaky? Would you remember that human will is not the ultimate decision maker in the outcome? Would you remember that Jesus Christ is Lord over all things, including the human will? Now, what's that mean to you? It means that you continue to plead. It means that you continue to teach. It means that you continue to preach. It means that you continue to pray. It means that you continue to warn, but you do so in rest. Knowing that human will is not the ultimate decision maker in the outcome of these events. Now listen, Christian. I want to talk to you a little more specifically for a moment. What is Jesus saying in here that confronts me as a believer. Well, we've got to talk about submission of the will for the sake of obedience. Let's go back to verse 16. <clears throat> so Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but His who sent me. If anyone's will is to do, emphasis on the word do, if anyone's will is to do God's will, then he will know. So we've just briefly talked about a condition that precedes a promise. I want to talk to you briefly about a call that precedes our doctrine. Or a call that precedes our doctrinal pursuits may be a better way of saying it, and probably even that's a little muddy, isn't it? It needs clarity, so let me give you a shot. Give it a shot. I believe that any time a man places emphasis solely 
primarily on learning, knowing doctrine with the intention of embedding that doctrine deep into his mind and never lives that doctrine out through the course of his life, that is a sign that regardless of how knowledgeable a man is, he is a man who greatly lacks understanding. Jesus confronts a very great temptation and He does it in a twofold way. First, He confronts that temptation that we're constantly bombarded by that says you must first primarily gain knowledge so that you'll be better at doing. I want to repeat that. That temptation that all of us are confronted with at times or have been at times, that we primarily gain knowledge in order that we would be better at doing. Now, I think that's great counsel for a brain surgeon. Okay, yes. If you're going to put a knife to somebody's head, read the book first. Okay? I think it's great. I think it's great counsel in relation to home building. I think it's great counsel in relation to mechanics and engineering, but the Savior does not emphasize that as our greatest need. The Savior does not emphasize that we need to know more in order to do more. He doesn't emphasize that we need to know more in order to do something better. That's the first temptation He confronts. Second temptation he confronts is that mindset that we're also bombarded with at times that says, in order to gain greater insight into a truth, I just simply need to be better informed. Okay? In order to gain a greater insight into a specific truth, I just need to be better informed about that truth. Jesus combats both of those temptations and we'll explore it a little bit more. D.L. Moody was known for his lack of eloquence of speech. And throughout his whole life. But of course, better as he got older. And it was, his his lack of eloquence of speech was often perceived as an overall lack of education. This guy's just dumb, okay? William Reynolds testifies to that as he reflects on a time when Moody was 20 years old, engaged in ministry. This is what he said. The first meeting I ever saw him in was a little old shanty that had been abandoned by a saloon keeper. Mr. Moody had got the place to hold meetings that night. I went there a little late, and the first thing I saw was a man standing up with a few tallow candles around him holding a Negro boy and trying to read to him the story of the prodigal son, and a great many words he could not pronounce, and he had to often skip over. And I thought, if the Lord can ever use such an instrument as that for His glory, it will astonish me. Now, what's the point of the illustration? It validates first priorities. Jesus is not instructing us to know more in order to do more. The Savior is instructing us to do or obey in order that we would truly know. It seems as if doing 
or obeying is that great necessity of the Christian life that transitions knowing to truly knowing. From knowing to truly, truly experientially, intimately, passionately knowing. And that confronts a mindset. A mindset that we've developed over the course of our lives that says, I learn, I know, therefore I do. It's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, do and obey in order that you may know. And when we think about how Jesus has just defined know, which means that I know, and at the same time, I'm being known. Known and being known. So let's think about that a minute. What's obedience mean? It means that when I obey, God acts. When I obey God, He acts for me. He acts through me. And He acts in me. That's that being known aspect of Christianity that takes place when I respond to the Savior with a very firm, Yes, Lord, and He reveals Himself through a companionship relationship. James 1.22 starts off by saying, but be doers of the Word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. He goes on to offer a little bit of explanation there. And then he says in verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Luke eleven twenty eight says, Jesus replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So with obedience comes blessing. What's the blessing? Stuff. When I obey, does God give me stuff? Does God give me a paycheck? When I say, yes, Lord, absolutely not. The blessing is His companionship while I'm doing One of the great things about the Great Commission is that in the midst of this great picture that Jesus paints that says, do these things, be obedient, the most beautiful aspect of the passage is He sums it up by saying, and as you are obedient, I am... Finish it for me. I am with you. And I am with you always. And I am with you even to the uttermost parts of the earth. Listen, I know it's the reality of the pages of the Bible. I know the Bible instructs me and encourages me to remember that I'm known by God. But through my obedience, that reality leaps off of the pages of the Bible and leaps into my life. So... When I act in obedience, as I reflect back on Corey Ten Boom for a moment, in relation to loving an enemy, okay, what begins to happen is I begin to know something experientially. I begin to know something intimately that gives life to the thing that I know intellectually. goes from here what I know intellectually, to hear what I now know passionately. Because as I respond to God in obedience, He comes and He's with me. He comes and He is with me, and you know what He does? He gives me the very love 
that He commands me to love with. And the end result of that is, oh God, I know who You are. You are true. This is what love truly is. I know what it has said. Now I know what it means. I know who You are. M.D. Babcock states, Men say that when they know, they will do. Jesus says that when they do, they will know. He does not promise to manifest Himself to the man who dreams or debates, but to him who keeps His commandments. The seeds of truth sprout in the soil of obedience. The words of Jesus in the mind of a disobedient man are no more vital than wheat in the wrappings of a mummy. To know the divinity of Jesus' teachings, we must do His will. Moral disobedience is mental darkness, but to submit our wills in loyalty to His law is to open our minds to the light of His truth. Have you ever in your Christian walk felt like, God, I just don't have passion right now. I feel passionless. God, I feel discouraged in my walk with You. I feel like it's lacking life. I feel like it's void of life. God, I'm discouraged. I'm discouraged. I want hope. I want love. I want joy. I want peace. I want hunger. I want desire. I want a ravenous desire, but God, it's just not there. I just don't feel it. I want it, but it's not present. And maybe your circumstance, maybe it's not quite that dramatic. Maybe you're just a little indifferent. I want to make two quick suggestions. One, pay attention to that. That's crucial. Secondly, I want to offer you and encourage you to try obedience. I just want to encourage you to respond in obedience to the truth that you do know. Now, hear what I'm saying. And I'm sure you do, and I don't, I don't want to expound a lot on this you know that I'm not talking about devaluing gaining knowledge. You know that, right? I can be very envious very quickly of people who have pursued and, and obtained that. Okay, That's not what we're saying. We're talking about first priorities. Jesus makes clear, first priorities are not seeking to obtain more knowledge and implant it. Jesus is saying, go out and do what you already know. Go do, go respond to the truth that you have, and you know what's going to happen? Then you're going to know. Then you're going to see. Then you're going to be exposed to deeper degrees of belief. But listen, what's our motive in even that? Okay? What's our motive? What, what fuels even that idea? Lastly, briefly, I want to talk about submission of the will as a response to not a principle, but a person, the Savior. Let's go back to verse 16. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but His who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, there's a link between a man and God. There's a very real, relevant, lively, life-fulfilling link 
I'm not just responding to principles. I'm responding to a person. If, if your will is affected, if your will is confronted, if your will is submitted, then you will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. I believe that when a person weighs out Christianity or they weigh out the idea of salvation, they can't really put it into words a lot of times, what it is that's going on with them. But I think, even though they can't put it in words, one of the things that's taking place is they're wrestling with the really underlying truth that maybe they can't even develop. And that truth is, Christianity has some claims on my life. Christ has claims on my life. And He's very clear and He's very bold about those claims and those expectations. But what happens is, the emphasis from a person who's trying to weigh out Christianity or contemplate salvation, that person begins to put an emphasis on the things that they have to change and the things that they have to give up rather than the pleasure that they can obtain by seeking after and submitting to the pleasures that define God. The pleasures that God wants to pass on and give to us. That God's very pleasures would become my very pleasures. And yes, the Christian life is a life of obedience, but there is a very relevant point of contact between me and obedience, and it's in the form of a person, Jesus Christ. That's the link to obedience. Let me try to give you an example. Luke 9.23 says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, the word wishes that Jesus uses in 9.23 of Luke, it's the same Greek word for will. Okay? If anyone desires, if anyone longs, if anyone wishes for this to happen, I think it's so easy to look at this passage and place the emphasis on the wrong section of Luke 9.23. I can't reflect on this passage and recall many messages that I've heard or many messages that I've even spoke where the emphasis was on the beginning of the passage that says, basically, if we were to say it in the form of a question, do you desire Christ? I don't think that's ever been the emphasis. The emphasis of this passage always seems to be on the self-denial of the person. And the crosses that will come your way as you try to follow the Lord, but of course He'll be there to help you through, and I don't want to make light of that. But that seems to be the emphasis of the passage. Your self-denial. You're carrying the cross. You're following Jesus versus the pleasure of the one that we're following. It always seems to be... It always seems to be the emphasis. And it's a wrong emphasis because it's an emphasis on us. And it doesn't matter if the emphasis, if we want to try to make the emphasis about our bravery. It doesn't matter. Hey man, look at what all I've given up for Christ. Look at what all I've sacrificed to follow the Lord Jesus. One of the biggest regrets I have is being so foolish as to stand before people and say, look at all that I've denied for Christ. I haven't given up anything for the Lord. Look at what I've done, man. I've, you know, we made it on $15,000 last year and God's been this and people are probably saying, dude, you're stupid. You got a wife and three kids and you're dumb. Go get a job. Go get a job and quit trying to trample all over the world. It can't be about our bravery. 
but it can't be about our failure either. Because the reality is, if my emphasis is on the latter part of Luke 9.23, my self-denial, the crosses I have to carry, listen, quite frank, can be a little intimidating. Because, I'll just be honest, it feels like I'm going to be set up for failure if the emphasis is on me denying myself and me carrying crosses in order to properly follow Him. The emphasis cannot be on the person following. The emphasis has to be on the beauty of the one that we're following. So maybe the question isn't, listen, how fully committed are you to Christ? Maybe the question isn't, are you willing and ready to lay down your life right now for Jesus Christ? Whew, I don't know. Let me think about that. Um, you know, hopefully when the time comes, you know, God will give me the grace to do that. But right now, you know, I really just don't want to lay down my life. I'm not prepared to do that. Maybe God, prayerfully God, will give me the grace when that time comes. We're getting ready to go on a mission trip. Pack your bags, man. Come on, let's go. Well, you know, man, I don't know. We just had a baby. My wife's had some difficulty in the labors and she's not... You sissy! This is about you denying yourself for the sake of the cross. What's wrong with you? The emphasis cannot be on us in our bravery. The emphasis cannot... Hypothetical bravery. The emphasis cannot be on us in our failures. Or this is such an intimidating passage. I'm going to flounder away. I'm going to die. Maybe the better question is, do you want to experience the pleasure of the person of Jesus Christ? Maybe that's the better question. Do you want to intimately, passionately, experientially know the joys of Jesus Christ in your struggling marriage? You want to know that? Yeah, I do. Then obey. Do what God says to do in relation to your marriage. You want to enjoy the fruitfulness of your wedding as two pure individuals that have waited, then obey. Abstain. Obey God, and then you're going to say, wow, this is what this means. So what was Corey Ten Boom's, what was her greatest responsibility? Now, her greatest need was grace. But what was her greatest responsibility? I think it was to obey. I think her greatest responsibility was to say, in spite of how I feel, Here's my hand, and I'm going to seek to forgive you. And what did that obedience produce in her? Well, her own confession was, I have never in my life ever experienced love the way that I experienced it at that moment. Obedience took her concept of love from here, and it gave it life here, and she can say, that's what you meant when you said God's love. That's what you meant when you forgave me. That's what you meant when you said that love should define us. That's what you meant when you just said the world will know we're truly disciples if we love one another. That's what you meant. I had it here. I understood the concept. Now I've got it here. Now I know. Now I know what it is. Woodrow Wilson states in closing, I was in a very common place. I was sitting in a barber's chair when I became aware that a personality 
had entered the room. A man had come quietly in upon the same errand as myself to have his hair cut. And he sat down in the chair next to me. Every word that this man uttered, though it was not the least didactic or instructive, showed a personal interest in the man who was serving him. So, this man wasn't coming and saying, I'm going to teach you. This man was coming and saying, I'm going to show you something. He's just loving the guy that's cutting his hair. That's all he's doing. Woodrow Wilson goes on to say, Before I got through with what was being done for me, I was aware that I had attended an evangelistic service because Mr. D.L. Moody was in that chair. Yeah, that guy that couldn't even talk about the prodigal son without stumbling over his words. That guy. I purposely lingered in the room after he had left and noted the singular effect that his visit had brought upon that little old barbershop. They talked in undertones. They didn't even know his name. They didn't even know who he was. But they knew something had elevated their thoughts. I felt that I had left that place as I should have left a place of worship. My admiration and esteem for Mr. Moody became very deep that day indeed. Why? He's just obediently trying to love a guy. That's all he's doing. That's all he's doing. He's not trying to impart knowledge. He's not trying to recorrect moral wrongs. He's saying, you know what? I'm just going to love him. And that was simple obedience. So I think the question is, as we close, guys, yes, gain knowledge, pursue knowledge, pursue truth. I believe Jonathan Edwards. I believe that what knowledge does is it either enlightens us to new affections that we didn't have or it stirs affections that we've previously had. I believe that. But what are you doing with the knowledge that you already have? I think Jesus is saying, listen, if you want to know deeper, if you want to know from here to here, obey. Just obey. Just obey. Let's pray. Father, we come to You this morning, God. And and, and Lord, I just pray that for a, a moment, Lord, as we stop and as we think and as we reflect, with open hearts. God, would You reveal some areas to us? God, would You reveal very distinct and very clear areas to us where we're maybe disobedient? Would You bring a circumstance to mind? Would You bring a person to mind? Would You bring moments that we create to mind? Would You bring pursuits? Things that we chase after. God, we are asking that You would reveal, show us that You would do what we can't do and that You would open our eyes. Lord, please keep nothing hidden from us this morning. But Lord, open our eyes to those specific areas, God where we may just be being disobedient, Lord. 
Give us conviction, passion, desire to correct that. Just be obedient in the things that we know. God, God, this is not a message about attaining a perfect perfect life or a perfect state of morality. God, we, we all are aware of that. But Lord, we know truth. And God, You say that it's life-changing. You say that it doesn't just... It's not intended to just linger in the walls of our mind, but it's intended to have hands and feet. It's intended to reach out. It's intended to run. So God, take truth that we know to the gospel. God, may we respond to it in our homes, not just there, not just here. God, in our world, among lost people, in relation to the things that we allow our eyes to see, the things that we allow our ears to hear. So God, we're asking, as Jason even suggested this morning, we need a miracle We need You to do what we can't and sometimes what we don't even want to do. God, reveal sin to us. Reveal areas of disobedience, Lord. That we would respond to a person and not a principle. And then we can say, God, that's what You meant when You said it. Do it for us, Lord, we pray. For Your glory, ultimately. And we ask this in Jesus' name.